Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. This is Clint Edwards, your host, and we are getting close to Christmas. So, if you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and Redeemer of the world, Merry Christmas. If you don't believe that, Merry Christmas anyway. I hope it's an enjoyable time of year for you. So, um, I'm excited to share this podcast with you because we're going to discuss the last clan battle of Scotland. Now, there was another clan battle after the one we're going to talk about that lays claim to being the last one, but some sources don't count it because it involved government troops to a, a greater degree, and it wasn't purely one clan versus another clan or one group of clans under the leadership of a specific clan versus another clan. So, um, they still don't count it. So what I'm talking about today, the one we're going to discuss, is the Battle of Altamarlach, the one that I said some people don't count as a last clan battle and occurred just a few years later, was the Battle of Mulroy. Now, the Battle of Mulroy took place in 1688, and the Battle of Altamarlach, the one that we're going to talk about today, that happened in 1680. Now, some of you are thinking, really, that's at least... I was thinking this, and so maybe I'm just superimposing myself upon you. But if you're thinking, well, weren't the clans in full effect right up until 1745 when, or really 46 at the Battle of Culloden, when the Hanoverian forces finally squashed the last Jacobite rising of any significance? And the power of clan chiefs to raise up their men in private armies and become a force to be reckoned with was finally extinguished. So that is quite a ways in the future of what we're going to be discussing today. I was thinking, wow, that's that's kind of a long time. Now, it doesn't mean that the clans didn't fight at all with each other in the meantime. It's We're just saying that the Battle of Altamarlach was the first, I mean, I, I correct myself, the last clan battle where it was just just strictly one guy, one head of a kindred, raising up men who answer his call, not solely because he is their feudal superior, but because they understand either a real or perceived kinship to him and are answering the call of the head of their kindred on both sides. So that's what we're looking at with the Battle of Altamarlach. Well, who fought at this Battle of Altamarlach? you may wonder. Well, the two belligerents in this conflict primarily were John Campbell of Glenorchy up against George Sinclair of Keese and those who followed him. And we'll get more into each side and who may have been included in those separate sides in a few minutes. Now, so let's let's maybe do a little background. I'm trying really hard to to just not run away with my thought process that is, you know, I've been studying this stuff for a long time now, and sometimes some people who care about me and who are close to me in a very kind manner said sometimes you just start talking like your listeners should understand certain things, and we don't, and it's not fun anymore. So. I'm going to try to solve that because it was so so kindly delivered. That criticism was so kindly delivered to me. I'm going to try to fix that. Um, 
to start with, I think my mom was the first one to give me that criticism. So thank you, mother, for looking out for your boy. And I've also had some friends say that. So let me try to make sure that I'm not leaving anybody behind. If you have a map of Scotland, up in the very far northeast corner, up after, after this part of Scotland, there's water and then there's the Orkney Isles. So we're in the very far north of Scotland, a place called Caithness. Caithness is the region or the, or the county that we're talking about. Now, um, the, the primary clan, the most powerful clan in Caithness, were the Sinclairs, or was the Sinclair clan. George seems to be a popular name amongst the Sinclairs. Because we have both of our main Sinclair characters we're going to talk about today were both named. Both of them were named George. So let's talk about the Sinclairs as a clan first. Give a little background on them. So this clan that is the dominant clan in the area of Caithness. Originally, they were a Norman clan, meaning their ancestors probably came into the British Isles with William the Conqueror were with him at the Battle of Hastings or took some sort of supporting role there and and pushed north and the the Normans the Normans were descended from Vikings. They had settled in northern France, adopted French language and customs, married into local French gals, and then a few generations later, under William the Conqueror, they conquer England. That's a really fast version of that. Now, unlike the 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 military conquest of England by the Normans, the Normans were actually inv invited into Scotland. I've talked about this in previous episodes. If you go back to my earlier episodes where I discussed the different ethnic groups the clans come from, I discussed it in a little more detail. So the Normans help David I get his throne back because he has some family squabbles over who's going to be the next guy. And he was sent packing, and he went into exile in England, which was then controlled by Normans, who happened to treat David very well. And in fact, when he felt like he was ready, he rounded up as many of his friends as he could, which included a large party of Normans, and said, who's with me? And everybody who was with them, they went north with all of their followers, and they fought it out, and David got his throne and so how does he say thank you to all these Normans? He was not an ungrateful man. He showed his gratitude by bestowing lands and titles upon these Normans. And so there you have it. And we have several of our modern day clans that we would recognize are descended from these Normans. They, just like in Ireland, and that's a different story, but just like there, so many of these Normans became, they, they, went, they completely went native to where you could not distinguish them from the local Gales. They married in with many of the native ruling families to strengthen their legitimacy to their title and lands. And to also gain, you know, keep in mind, Scotland and the whole premise of this, this show is the kin-based society of Scotland. And so when you marry into the local ruling family, that, that not only gives you legitimacy as a ruler, but it gives you some sort of blood tie, at least your kids then, have some sort of blood tie to these people, even though you came from somewhere else. So, the Sinclairs come from that type of background, the Norman background. 
and they were eventually given lands about in the mid-1400s in Caithness. That's where they enter the scene up there. Now, keep in mind this Norman introduction into Scotland. This has happened in the 1100s, so 1400s. So you're 300 years later, and that's when they finally gain a, a foothold up there and gain the earldom of, of, of Caithness. Well, some of you may have already heard the name Sinclair before, because in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, he makes popular an already an already existing storyline of this the possibility that Jesus Christ was married and to to Mary Magdalene and they had offspring and these partly divine offspring when Jesus Christ dies is crucified they they set sail for other lands and anyway it's all about that bloodline of Christ, and the Sinclairs actually tie into this and are said to have been descendants, actually, of Jesus Christ, if you're following this this storyline. And so that the leading the leading members of the Sinclair clan would be actual direct descendants of Jesus Christ. Now, where do I stand on that? This is not a, a crucial part of my faith at all. Was Christ married? Maybe. Did he have offspring? Well, it seems like the natural thing to do when you get married. Less so today, but for centuries and centuries and thousands and thousands of years, that was the natural thing to do. You get married, you have kids. So if he was married, it would stand to reason that he had kids. And then, well, where are these kids? Where is his bloodline today? And so people who follow the storylines say that the Sinclairs are tied up in this. They established the their... their um, they gain lands in a place called Roslyn, and Roslyn Chapel, just I think it's west of Edinburgh a little bit. Roslyn Chapel has all sorts of symbolism that reflect back onto this storyline, and and it's evidence that they're heirs to this bloodline. Anyway, if I if I get to heaven someday and they say, hey, guess what? Jesus was married. I'll say, okay, cool. And if they tell me he wasn't married. Then I'll say, okay, cool. Anyway, so Sinclair's, maybe descendants of Christ, maybe. So what else do I need to tell you about the, I think, I think that's, that's most of the background I want to give you about the Sinclair's. Anyway, they're a big deal in Caithness. Let's, let's switch over to the Campbells. Now the Campbells, <clears throat> by the time, by this time that we're, uh, the story that we're talking about in the 16, late 1670s, up to 1680. By this time, the Campbells are just crazy powerful in Scotland. They control, I don't know if any of you have a clan map, a map of Scotland that shows clan territories on it. And you'll see that the Campbells are kind of a big deal. Now, if you've got the one, I've, I've seen several maps actually. All of them are kind of based on the same time period and the same information. But it, if you have that map, the Campbells are a big deal on that. It shows a lot of territory for the Campbells. If you were to take that same map, but show an accurate depiction of clan ter territories in the 1600s, especially up in the time that we're talking about now, the Campbell territory would be much bigger than it already was in that map that you're used to seeing. It, the, the Campbells are just so, so powerful right now. Now, as with any clan that's been around this long, they've split they have different branches of the clan so you've got the, the clan chief 
Now, the chief of all of the Campbells eventually becomes the Earl or eventually the Duke of Argyle. So you have this chiefly line of all the Campbells. But as this man has different sons, he gives them territory in different areas. And now they begat different lines or different branches of the main clan. So you have, just off the top of my head, for example, you have Campbells of Glenorchy. That's going to be the main subject. They're the the main branch that we'll be discussing today. You have, but you have also the Campbells of um, Ardkinglis. You have the Campbells of of Cawdor. You have the Campbells of Luden. You have the Campbells of Craignish, um, Auchenbreck. You could just, they really did have a lot of branches. And, and some of these branches actually become almost like their own clan. And, and we've talked about this maybe a little bit more with the McDonald's already. Because a similar thing, any clan that got to be so big and so powerful, they have branches of that clan that are almost like clans in and of themselves. And that was definitely the case for the, for the Campbells. The Campbells, so I told you the Sinclair origin. I'll, I'll maybe try to touch on the Campbell origin here a little bit. The Campbells, the earliest one on record that we have is Gillespeg of Menstry. He and his son was Colin Moore. Now, this Colin Moore, he was such a big deal that all Campbell of Argyle chiefs, so the, the chiefs of the main branch, the most powerful branch of the Campbells, these chiefs, ever after Colin Moore, style themselves Colin Moore, so son of great Colin. Moore means great in, in Gaelic. So he was such a big deal that his name was a, the, the rest of his descendants that, that were head the head of the clan took the leadership, took his name as their title. So from then on, doesn't matter what their name was, if it was Archibald or Gilspec or or Yoin or whatever their their given name was, they went by their their title as the chief of all the Campbells was McCollin Moore. This this Colin Moore, the the original this this man that from whom they get the name, he was actually killed in ambush by McDougals. So there you have it. His son Neil chose to follow Robert the Bruce during that time period. Now you're now we're getting into things that you might know about. So we've we've jumped back several centuries from the story that we're going to tell today. I'm just trying to keep everything straight. Help you so I'm not skipping around all over the place. So our story today happens in 1680. We're going clear back to the late 1200s when we're talking about this this uh or the mid to mid to late 1200s as we talk about the origins of the Campbells. They chose to follow Robert the Bruce. So if you're following the whole Braveheart transition into Outlaw King time period, that's that's what we're talking about right now. And that was a good choice for him because we know that Robert the Bruce wins. Spoiler alert. Sorry, I didn't I didn't give the alert before the spoiler, which is uh, foul foul pool, man. I got it. Okay, gig for gig for Clint. Now, before even before that, let me let me crawl back just a little bit farther. I don't know which Campbell it was, but one of them married an heiress of a kindred called Odun, and this kindred held lands in the Loch Ah area, and that's how the Campbells get there in the first place. So they're there, and then a few generations later, you have Neil Campbell sides with Robert the Bruce. Why is that a big deal? Well, because the clans that didn't side with Robert the Bruce, like the McDougals and the Cummins, 
who were actually connected by marriage, they they suffered. They paid for their bad choice of side. Well, I mean, the Cummins were one of the other sides. The McDougals were connected to them, so they sided with the Cummins. It, was a, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. There's no way they could have told the future, so this is not a gig for the McDougals. They were probably just doing what they thought was right. Anyway, they lost, and that's really what matters as far as the story is concerned because the Campbells, because they were loyal to Robert the Bruce, end up getting a lot of the McDougal land that is forfeited that Robert the Bruce confiscates from them and hands it out to people who are more loyal to him, like the Campbells. So now the Campbells, starting out with a little territory in this Laja area. So Laja, for those of you who do not have a map right in front of you, is in the Western Highlands, okay? So they had territory already. Now they're getting some of the McDougal's territory. Now they're growing in importance. And just, they kept on growing. And here's a couple of things that went well for the Campbells. They had smart chiefs, and they didn't fight with each other as much as some of the other clans did, like the McDonald's. You get into the 1500s, and the different branches of the McDonald's just at each other's throats. Meanwhile, the Campbells do have some hiccups in there, some death plots, some, some greed and envy and enmity and things that, that don't go well. But as a whole, taking their, their history together, they managed a much greater degree of unity than some of the other clans did. And that's why you see them rising. And they're just, once again, they're, they're just led by capable people. These chiefs of the Campbells figured out how to be both Gallic Highland chieftains in that cultural context, but also how to navigate and actually thrive in lowland circles as well. And so they could they could wear these two hats and they and they they were just so good at it. And it just went very well for them. They had they had some very good marriages that brought territory into the clan. And there's some other things going on. My my goal here is not I guess to give you a full history of the Campbell clan, but I do want to let you know that I think, you know, as you read Highland history, Highland, the history of the Highland clans, the Campbells are always the boogeyman. And it's not just the Battle of Glencoe where they massacred a bunch of McDonald's. First of all, the force that did that was not completely Campbell's. Now, it was led by Campbell's. They're amongst the officers of that government force. They're, so anyway, Battle of Glencoe, I'm not trying to bog you down with a bunch of details that you don't, that you don't need. But that, that kind of made them a boogeyman within the Highlands. But even before that, a lot of people held a grudge against them because they consistently sided with the government in Edinburgh, with the royal, the royal Stuart. And they, they did it well, and it went well for them. They just increased in power. And because they weren't, it was like it was kind of cool to thumb your nose at the king if you were a Highland clan. Now, that's a gross overgeneralization. There were other clans besides the Campbells that took a very pro-government stance. And this could be the subject of other, a lot of other episodes, and it probably will be. The Mackenzies, for, for most of their recorded history, took a very pro-government stance. Allison Cathcart, Professor Cathcart, writes quite a bit about the Macintosh, the leanings of the Macintosh clan trying to align themselves with Edinburgh. Anyway, they, the Campbells weren't the only ones that did this, but they seem to be the only one that had their name, their good names tarnished because of that 
that stance. Anyway, I don't look at the Campbells as the boogeyman. I uh, they did they did some mean things and they did some good things, kind of like every other clan ever on the face of the earth. There are some things that were good and some things that weren't good. All right. So you have the Campbells, who are a really big deal now. Okay, we're going to fast forward. Right? Take your minds out of the 1200s, 1300s. Fast forward to 16, the late 1670s. Now let's, let's talk about some of the events that lead up to the Battle of Altamarlach, the last clan battle. George Sinclair, the sixth Earl of Caithness, found himself in heavy debt. He appealed to John Campbell of Glenorchy, who would later become the first of Bret Alban. We'll get to that in a minute. And then so John Campbell of Glenorchy becomes George Sinclair's creditor. When George Sinclair died, he didn't have an heir, a, a male offspring to inherit and everything. And Campbell took possession of certain Sinclair estates, the earldom of Caithness, and George Sinclair's wife to settle the debt. Now, it just didn't, he didn't just walk over there and say, okay, I got this. He, he's... There, it was it was a long. I just made that sound like it was really short. It wasn't quite all that sudden. Now, it's an interesting thing. So he did. So part of the estates of the Sinclairs that he gained control of were Gurnago, and there are still the ruins of some really cool castle ruins there, Castle Sinclair of Gurnago. And he, so he he takes possession of the Gurnago estates, probably some other ones. And the so and, and then a little while later, he he acquires the Earldom of Caithness as the, officially his title. And he marries George's widow, George Sinclair's widow. Now, interesting thing about his widow, she was the daughter of the Earl of Argyle. And so that would make her John Campbell's kin. I don't know exactly how close it is. I didn't look that up. And it's not really that important to our story, but she was kin to him. Um, I don't think it was first cousins, I guess. That's when you got to start worrying about things. Anyway, so... So, there was a man named George Sinclair, also named George Sinclair. I know that this is George, like I mentioned earlier, is kind of a popular name amongst the Sinclairs. Anyway, you have a man named George Sinclair of Keys. I think that's how you say it. I've never heard it pronounced. I've just read it. K-E-I-S-S. -S. I'm going to say Keys. And if somebody out there knows better, please correct me to one of the methods that we have to carry on this conversation outside of this episode, namely the Facebook page. Anyway, I'll get to that a little bit more later, how you can contact me if this is the first time that you've ever listened in. So just because George Sinclair, the Earl of Caithness, didn't have any sons, it doesn't mean that there was nobody standing by to inherit things. So you have this George Sinclair of Keese that I mentioned, and he's kind of felt put pretty put out that he didn't inherit, that John Campbell, this guy who's not even from this area, gets the land, the title, the widow, everything. And I don't know if George Sinclair was in the running for this widow. I, I don't know. But you uh, you have, you, he's, he's bitter about this, as maybe you can understand that he would be. Now, you see, there's an interesting phenomenon going on here. And John Bannerman points this out in his, in his book that I've mentioned in previous episodes. It's called... God, it's been a while since I've since I've read it now, a few months, but it was kinship, culture, and community 
in, and that's that was the main title. It's, it's a sort of essay, it's a collection of essays by John Bannerman. And he talks about the concept of, in Scotland, in a kin-based culture, you have somebody who acquires lands and title in a certain area where he has no kindred base. And that poses a problem sometimes, and it did for John Campbell. So here he, the if you're, and especially if you are a Sinclair, and you're a guy that you're used to, and you're a big fan of him, and it, it kind of looks from the sources like George Sinclair of Keese was well-liked within his community, but he doesn't get it, and some other guy gets it. And he's one of those Campbells who get everything. Now he's got your clan's stuff and nobody, anyway, and like I said earlier in this book that's written by James Calder, it, it looks like John Campbell's style of leadership in Caithness is fairly tyrannical. And I don't know what it was like back in Glenorchy and the other places in the Brett Alban area of Scotland, what it was like back there, farther south. But the people of Caithness generally did not like him, according to the source, according to the source. All right. So and so George Sinclair, how is he going to fix this problem? Well, first, he tries the legal route. He tries appealing to the government and they side with him. Now, the commentary given in this book by James Calder, it says that there's it looks pretty fishy legally and it may have been. I don't know. I don't know enough about Scottish law during this time period to give a a judgment or a, an opinion on that. But it doesn't work out for Sinclair of Keys. It doesn't go to he doesn't his appeal is is shot down and he's ordered to just play along. Do what you're supposed to do. This guy, this Campbell guy is your boss. Just just go with it. Well, it's not good enough. Now, John Campbell had to have seen that this this wasn't going well up up in Caithness for him. Every time the local citizens could be a thorn in his side by not cooperating somehow, they did it. They were just everything they could do to frustrate him and annoy him and to make him not succeed in his leadership, they did. And that really tells you that they're – and I don't know what this is saying also about George Sinclair of Keese. Maybe he was such a well-respected person that anything other than his leadership was unacceptable. I'm just I'm just speculating there. That's that's not anything really solid. But what what is what is true according to these sources is that the people do not cooperate with John Campbell's leadership. Well, just like I mentioned earlier, if you don't have a kin base in this area, how are you going to make the people do what you tell them to do and cooperate? Well, you're going to march a force of about 800 people north from your home territories who are willing because you do have a kin base there to stand up and fight with you and you're going to march north north and you're going to make people do stuff well that's john campbell's course of action here he reaches back to the campbells of glenorchy that he's the, the immediate chief of as well as so so remember in earlier in the earlier part of this episode i was talking about the different branches of big clans well, the Campbells of Glenorchy, which were themselves a branch, had branches of their own. And these branches lived in places like Glen Lyon and Glen Dochart and Glen Falloch and Achalader. Anyway, these places are mostly to the east of Glenorchy, but they're still in the highlands, okay? So, so he's going to reach back there, and also he's not just going to 
uh, include these branches of his clan. So he would be the, even though the Earl of Argyle is his overall chief in all the Campbells, over these branches of Campbells, he's the next, the mo more, it, we would call a first line leader in the army. These the, the chiefs of these smaller branches, he's their chief. And then it goes from him up to the Earl of Argyle. I don't know if that helps you get an idea of chain of command within the Campbells at all. Anyway, so not, he not only reaches back to these branches of Campbells, but his brother-in-law is the chief of the McNabs. And so they come along with him. So this force of Highlanders from the central and western Highlands, they they march north, and there he is going to, by golly, UK business guys are going to cooperate, or I'm just going to bring Scunion on the whole county. So <clears throat> the George Sinclair of Keys finds that this is going on, that there's this big force moving into the into the neighborhood. So he rallies all these Caithness men, and he and and he has said there's the forces that he is able to to get together are some say about eight hundred, some say it was more like fifteen hundred, so maybe somewhere in between there. The the force that Campbell is coming in with is actually from this from James Calder, he's saying that it was about 700 men. Some people debate that number as well. We don't really know, but let's use those as, as ballpark figures. You got about 700 plus men on the Campbell side and 800 plus on George Sinclair's side. So they're, they're coming north and they, uh, the Sinclair, George Sinclair of Keys, rallies all these Caithness men to this cause. And they go out to meet the, the Campbells. Now, the Campbells, I don't know whether it was, it was too late in the day or just this, it wasn't, it wasn't looking like this is their ideal moment to strike. But they, they uh, decide to retreat to a hill named Torinangail, and which is the hill of the Highlanders. Which I'll actually address that title later on. There's a few things in this story that are culturally interesting, and and I just I, it it kind of brings questions to my mind. So I guess not only do I want to share with you stories, but I also want to share with you the questions I have about those stories. Now, when Campbell and his men retreat, or not, they didn't retreat. They just decided not to fight right then, and he moves his men back to Torunangail. For the night. And now I don't know if George Sinclair and all of his Caithness men and Sinclairs thought that that was kind of a, they did that because they were intimidated, that the camels were intimidated by them. Anyway, I think that's how they took it because they went back that night and got crazy drunk. They just got wasted. Well, that's a problem because the Campbells didn't retreat in fear at a maybe superior, numerically superior force. They didn't, they didn't retreat at all. They just didn't want to fight right then. And they were ready the next morning. But what are all the, the Sinclairs the next morning? They're hungover like crazy. And so you've got a bunch of hungover guys. Now, in Calder's account, the, this, most of George Sinclair's force, they are not seasoned fighters. They're old men and guys who have no idea which end of the spear is which. 
there's one guy, uh, a kinsman of George Sinclair, Sinclair of Thursa. I know you're thinking it's got to be Thursa, but I'm pretty sure it said Thursa in the in the in James Calder's account here. He had he had done some fighting on the continent, and like a lot of Scots had done in the 1600s. But he's like really one of only very few in the Sinclair force that have any military background. And apparently the Campbell force, meaning different branches of the Campbells and the McNabs, were seasoned warriors. And you can imagine how this is going to turn out. And yeah, Calder goes into a little bit more detail about tactics and who was where. And he's talking about the terrain. I... If you go to the Wikipedia site for this battle, it will give you a grid coordinate that you can then go to Google Earth, plug it in, and it'll drop a pin, plug it in the search bar at the top left corner, and then press search, and it will drop a pin right where they think this battle happened, where this is supposed to have taken place. Now, you'll see if you do that, that there's this, there's the, this stream or, you know what? I was gonna, I was gonna get really Idahoan on you right there. There's in Idaho, we we call it a creek. A lot of people call it a creek, but we call it a creek. Probably they do that in other intermountain Great Basin areas because I think we kind of all have the same accent. But anyway, it looks like there's a creek running through there, and then there's this little ravine that cuts off away from it to the north. This the creek at this point is running roughly east-west. It winds a little, but it's roughly generally east-west. And this little, this little cut in the in the in the land runs kind of north off of that. Calder says that Campbell stuck a bunch of his guys in there, and then and I think that's what I'm looking at because it's right by where the pin landed when I plugged this in, and it just it fits Calder's description of of what happened. Anyway, he sticks some of his guys in there, stands up there on the waiting for the. Sinclair force to attack, they attack what they think is Campbell's whole force, but which is not, and even if it was his whole force, they were still more than enough to handle the Sinclair assault, and they did, and they made havoc of the Sinclair forces, who broke in a disorderly retreat slash turning into a rout right in to where the rest of the Campbells were hiding, who pop out of this ravine and commence to kill more people than had already died. The and now that I'm looking at this on Google Earth, it actually makes a lot more sense. The people who haven't been killed yet are trying to flee south across this stream. I'm gonna call it a stream. Some of you are probably getting a little tripped out by the whole crick thing. Anyway, they're trying to cross the stream. I really don't know how – I don't have a lot for scale in this picture. See how big it is? But um, they, they're they getting killed and cut down as they're crossing the stream. And the tradition, the legend that's passed down is that their dead bodies filled up the stream so that the camels could cross over with dry feet. That's, that's kind of a grisly, a morbid detail of the story. But it just tells you how – Awful the destruction was that the the Campbells wrought on the Sinclairs. This was not a, a good moment in Sinclair history. Now, I don't I'm not meaning this to be a down on the Sinclairs episode. I'm sure that Sinclairs had their bright moments in military history. They're brave, they're 
and you got to think how if you're George Sinclair of Keese, do you know that your force is not ready? But you're going into this anyway because it's your it's your home territory. These are your people, and the Campbells are basically invading your country. And he still goes out to fight. So I think there's some we. This doesn't need to reflect poorly on the Sinclairs, even though this is a disastrous military experience for them. Now, so anyway, they lose. They lose bad. There's a the John Campbell of Glenorchy has a piper in his ranks. His, I don't know if it was his own personal piper or if it was a guy that was just there, but he's a piper. His name's Finley MacIver. And he, according to James Calder, spontaneously composes a pipe tune right in the midst of the battle. And it's called Bodoch Nabrigish, which I think means the, the, what the, the translation into English that I found that was gaffers and breeches. A gaffer's an old man, which would lend some credence to Calder's detail that this force was made up of a lot of guys who are not in their prime of life. And they were wearing breeches, not kilts like Camel's guys. So, anyway, a bad moment. Now, that's not the whole story. That's the, there, there you have the last clan battle, the purely just two kindreds and their friends duking it out. No government involved that we can tell. Now, there's there's a little bit more to the story. So, George Sinclair, you, we haven't seen the, the last of him. He does not, even though, and he survives the Battle of Altamarla. And he does not, he doesn't stop pursuing what he sees to be his his uh, inheritance in the battle between in a time between the battle of Altamarloch and and his receiving his inheritance the like I was mentioning the, the people the local people in that area are just super loyal to him and he but he wasn't and he, he uses that loyalty not uses it that kind of sounds uh self-serving but he rallies these men and they they go back actually and try another military encounter after this resounding victory for John Campbell of Glenorchy, he actually leaves and sends most of his – and he, he himself I, looks like he actually leaves with these men. And they leave kind of a skeleton crew to run, thing, run things back in Caithness. And maybe he just thought that we have so thoroughly trounced these people that there's just no way. And so I'm going to leave a bare minimum. They're going to garrison Castle Sinclair of Guernago, and we're going to be on our way. We've, we've done – We've, we've proven our point here. Well, they didn't because George Sinclair later on rallies more men. They besiege the uh, the castle Sinclair and they actually take it. And then finally, George Sinclair of Keese gets a break and the king acknowledges that, no, this is this is all messed up right here. George Sinclair should get this stuff, not... John Campbell, I don't care how much he lent and with the ode and stuff. Anyway, he straightens it all of that out. George Sinclair actually gets his his title, his lands, all the stuff that Campbell had taken because of this debt. He gets it back. So in the long run, George Sinclair comes out a winner. And the Sinclairs, there's more to him than just the Battle of Altamarloch. Now, because the king stepped in and said, hey, John Campbell, you don't get all of Caithness. You can't just 
you, there's other things going on here and you can't just do that. But because I'm just going to pull this title from you, which you may in some very tricky, strict legal things going on here, you may have actually been do you. I'm, as a consolation prize, I'm going to give you, I'm, instead of just John Campbell of Glen Orkey, I'm going to make you the first Earl of Brett Alban. Brett Alban is a, a central highlands area, which included a lot of John Campbell's territories. And so there you have when he becomes the first Earl of Brett Alban. So there's kind of the rest of the story. George Sinclair gets his stuff. John, Sinclair, uh, John Campbell wins the battle. Loses eventually Caithness, but gets an elevation in title and maybe some other perks. And that's and that's the story. Now, there's just a couple of cultural things going on here that I want to bring up. All right. Torin Nungail. Nungail. The Highlander's Hill. Why Why do we... Was it... Did this people... Do people in Caithness... Did they not consider themselves Highlanders? This is interesting. Now, if you look at some people and they draw the Highland line, it, uh, it does actually cut off Caithness and doesn't include it as part of the Highlands. And then other sources will say, yeah, the, the Sinclairs are a Highland clan and Caithness and on and on. This is, I think that just that little small detail, and I don't know if I'm reading too far into this, but why would you name that the Highland? If you consider yourself Highlanders in this area, would, and, and what was the difference between the Campbell force and the Sinclairs culturally. I wonder. Now this Torin and Gale, that's you see the word Gale meaning Highlander, but Gale would also be somebody who spoke Gaelic or in other parts Gaelic, other or the other other forms of it. And so I just that this makes me wonder about the cultural difference between the Campbells and Sinclairs. The Campbells would have been from, and the McNabs would have been from the Gaeltacht. Uh, Michael Newton has done some work on this, outlining different, you know, well up until this point, Gaelic was for sure spoken in this location, and and throughout as you're reading that Michael Newton's work there, and I can't remember exactly which article of his. I've read several of his of his writings. Um, you can actually start to develop a little bit of a, a line at certain time periods. So it's it's really interesting. And so this line between the probably Scots-speaking Sinclairs and the probably Gal mostly Gaelic-speaking force of the Campbells, just that's interesting as it as it comes out in this story, the Hill of the Highlanders or the Highlanders Hill, that that would that they would stand out. Now let's go back to this this pipe tune composed by Finlay MacIver, the piper for John Campbell of Glenorchy. Burach na Brigish. Gaffers and breaches. So it's interesting that not only was there probably a language difference between the Sinclairs and the Campbells, but there was a, even if nobody said a word, you could probably look at them and tell the difference because apparently the Campbell force was mostly wearing kilts while the Sinclairs were not. They were wearing breeches, or as it comes down to us out here and where I live, breeches. So there's there's that cultural difference there too. All right, that's that's really all I have. Like I said, my main source from that was James Calder's sketch of the civil and traditional history of Caithness from the 10th century. That is actually available available on Google Books, 
and you can find a link to that in the bottle in the bottom of the Wikipedia article. Or let me make it easier for you, and I will just post links to that in the show notes. Sound good? So you can go right to the same source I'm using. There are some other there's some just the, the, some of the more common Scottish culture Scottish clan websites. You can like ScottClans.com or just the Wikipedia article, but a lot of those I've seen, it looks like they're reaching back to, to this sketch of the civil and traditional history of Caithness. Let me see. All right. Well, yeah, I think that's I think that's all I've got for you today. Just a just a word, if you could. If you think that you know somebody that would enjoy listening to tales of the Scottish clans and not just the stories, but learning more about who these people were, how they operated, what, what, uh, how clans worked, all the, uh, it's a strong mix of, of storytelling, but also more academic stuff to help us flush out our knowledge of this, these people, these, these places, this, the culture, all of that. I'll I, once again. I'm trying to be as open as possible with my sources. I've mentioned John Bannerman. I've mentioned Michael Newton. Perhaps I'll provide links to some of their books in my show notes. I've read their stuff, and it's just. I really think that if you want to dig into the subject of Scottish clans more, there are some good, solid sources from these are these are scholarly men. They're not. And I know. I know that you don't, you can learn a lot by just studying some stuff at your house, but these are the guys that have all of the credentials that make people credible that you, you kind of look for. Anyway, that's what I'll, I'll provide links to some of their work, maybe to their books on Amazon in the show notes. So I appreciate you listening to this. Please do share with your friends. Please do. If you've got comments or questions on this, I'm getting some great feedback some questions from you guys. It's, hey, what do you think about this? And why didn't these people do that? And and I just I have saw one recently today pop up that I really thought ah, that deserves a little bit more time and, and research on that. And so I appreciate what you guys have given me back so far, the conversation that we're developing. This is fun for me. And so if you want, if you've never done this before, you're new to this show, you can go to facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. The, the title of the Facebook page is Scottish clans, but Scottish clans is taken. So facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. And if there's a question, I'll have, I'll post links to the, to the podcast on there. And if you want to make comments down below that, I think that's the best way to do it because it's not a group. If I had to do this all over again, I would just have made it a group and you could all just post whenever and we could just really get this thing rolling. But I'll have a, I'll have plenty of opportunity on there for you to comment on something or just send, send Scottish clans a, a message on messenger through Facebook. Um, it's, it's really fun to hear, hear your thoughts and your questions as, as you come back. And that's actually this whole episode was actually inspired by a, somebody saying, Hey, love what you're doing. What do you think about doing something on the Campbells versus Sinclairs? I was like, oh, okay. And that kind of stuck out in my mind. And later on, I saw something about the last clan battle. And I was like, you know what? Let's just go for it. So that's what, that's the story behind what we did today. So, and also on the platform that you're listening to this on, will you 
go on there and rate this podcast and maybe give me even a written feedback on it and subscribe to it. And however that looks, it looks different on iTunes versus Spotify. I think I'm going to come out with something for Stitcher here in the near future and try to get it on that platform as well. But they all have their versions of liking it or subscribing, leaving reviews. I'm just inviting you to help me out by doing that. I would sure appreciate it. I really do look forward to seeing you next time. And I hope you have once again a Merry Christmas or whatever you call this time of year. I hope it just is a very enjoyable time for you. Until later, goodbye.